At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. Knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. It's a great story because they had people sending them all these kind of harebrained ideas of ways to get that fish all the way in, um, you know, so soapy. And there was something about tying a cable to the engine block and uh, I don't even, you know, it was just crazy stuff and trying to, to winch it in and, and they had trying to flood it in. And um, at the end of the day, none of that worked, but they, they still got their catch. So it was a long day. I think that way in, it was the last day of the tournament they were having the awards banquet and people were watching weigh in from the banquet on closed circuit. And I believe it was like nine or nine 30. So in theory, like there was a winner's table at the awards banquet that was empty because everyone knew that this was probably the fish, but they hadn't got in yet. I'm Bethany Bradshaw, and this is the Tom Rowland podcast. Hey everybody, welcome to the podcast today. We've got a great guest. Bethany Bradsher is a ghost writer and she also recently wrote a book about one of the, I mean, one of the biggest tournaments that there is. If you know anything about sport fishing, you've heard of the Big Rock. It is a really big one and uh, a lot of money exchanges hands. It's for the, It's where the big boys play. And um, Scott Walker has certainly fished in that tournament before and told me stories about it. So I was interested in hearing the stories about the Big Rock, the history, and what's going on. It happens to be going on right now. So I have Bethany with us. And here she is. Bethany, thanks for doing this. I really appreciate it. Well, it's great to be here. Yeah. This is a topic I love to talk about. Thanks for having me. Is it? Why, why is it a topic for you to, uh, to be very interested in? Well, I, for more than 20 years, I've lived about 60 miles from Moorhead City, where the Big Rock is based. And so I, I just think as a resident of Eastern North Carolina, I have heard about the tournament for years and I didn't grow up this type of fishing. I grew up in South Texas near Galveston and okay. I've been on boats all my life, different capacities, but I didn't know a whole lot about Marlin fishing until I moved here and started learning about the big rot. And, um, I was just struck by the drama. Like you mentioned the amount of money involved. And it's, it's just a story I wanted to tell because I felt like it was something that even people who aren't interested or don't think they're interested in sport fishing and offshore fishing would get into because of the storylines. Right. And so, the big rock, I mean, like I, I said, that's where the big boys play. I mean, the the boats, I mean, you don't even have to 
have any interest in fishing to see, you know, something like that or the White Marlin Open up in uh, in Maryland. Those two tournaments are, are two of the biggest that I know about. But I mean, you just like just the the whole scene, the just these incredible boats with these incredible crews and captains, and just the whole fanfare that goes into the whole thing is is pretty interesting. I've never been to the Big Rock, and I've seen a lot of videos of the White Marlin Open, but I can only imagine. I mean, is that what happens at that at that tournament? Yeah, and I think what makes the Big Rock unique, even among other um, bill fishing tournaments up and down the East Coast, is is the town of Moorhead City. It, everything is focused on one landing and one weigh-in spot, and it's a big fish on the dock tournament. So the drama all surrounds the size of that one marlin that's brought in, and this huge prize money. This year, it's three point three four million dollars wow. at stake total in all the different divisions, but the winning Marlin, the biggest Marlin caught this year is going to win 1.1 million, which is the biggest prize ever for that one fish. So I think the drama surrounding that one catch, even though the release points categories are, you can win a lot of money in those as well. And there's some game fish that, you know, get win money, but it's all that the hunt for the one. And I think that creates um, an extra level of drama, especially when you're talking about, you know, sometimes eight or 900 pound Marlin (laughs) and that town is, just completely changed by the tournament there. So there's just that one spot that everyone gathers and, and it's, it's really unique. It's so much fun to be down there. So how uh, was this year different? I mean, with the, with, with the coronavirus and everything, was it, was it kind of um, left uh, up to, you know, like to be determined for a while, whether this, this year's tournament was going to happen or what was that like? Yeah, the Big Rock Board did not make the call to go ahead until the end of April. So it was really, you know, just a little more than a month ago that it was officially um, announced that it was on. They even debated having the tournament in early July. And I think at the end of the day, decided that wouldn't make that big of a difference. And Hmm. so they went with the normal week. I'm sure that would have really upended some calendars. Yeah. Those that fish the Nurse Cup in North Carolina or other places. And so they stayed with it. And I was out there yesterday and they've got barricades down directly around landing the areas where crowds usually push in Mm -hmm. they have barricades but what's kind of funny is behind the barricades the crowds are pushing in oh really (laughs) they're They're just further back and and people are making an effort but as the week goes on i mean yesterday was monday the first day of fishing you know the fifth and sixth day of fishing are friday and saturday and that is just traditionally when the world comes to the crystal coast and tries to watch this tournament. So it's going to get interesting. Um, they're, you know, they weren't enforcing it. They keep saying, keep a fishing rod length of space between you. Yeah. Cute. And, um, uh, sometimes that was happening. That's all I'll say. Yeah. About that. But it so was exciting. In that tournament, are there, um, a number of fishing days that you can go out and then you can choose the lay days. Is that how that one works? So six fishing days, every crew fishes four. Okay. So yesterday there are 205 boats entered this year, which is not a record, but it's the most they've had since about 2000. So it's, it's really, I think that was the other thing with coronavirus. I don't think the board knew what to expect in terms of entries. You know, there was the, your one way of thinking that everybody is so excited for something to be happening right. and they love this tournament that, that there be more entries, but then the opposite is maybe they've made other plans or maybe they're whatever unsure because they also had to cancel some of the big social events surrounding the tournament, mm. which are some of the favorites of the cruise. So 
I think even the board was surprised at yeah. 205 entries. Yeah. So they have that. Yesterday, there were 189 out there. So it was a beautiful day. Weather and conditions were great. I mean, the Marlin, there were something like 46 uh, blue Marlin released yesterday, which is a ton. Um, that's for, for the Big Rock. That is a huge day. Four weigh-ins. So the conditions are great. I mean, today looks to be, I just looked out my window. I don't live too far away. It yeah. looks to be about the same. And it'll be interesting to see what happens. Um, I have a hunch just looking at the weather that the more, more of the boats are going to lay out those last couple of days. Hmm. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's a tough one to lay out the last day, like, or the last two days, because you just leave so much up to, you know, the rest of the field to catch up. But I, I don't know. There's so much strategy in, you know, we, I, I've certainly fished in a lot of fishing tournaments, nothing like those, but uh, everything from, you know, inshore flats tournaments to professional redfish tournaments. And, and there's always just a tremendous amount of strategy that goes into everything, everything that you do, how far you're going to run, what you're going to do. And in this case, you know, what days you're going to fish. I think that's a really interesting kind of thing because like you look at it and I don't know, you lay off and then that's the day, that's the day the big one comes in. That's a, that's a tough decision to make. It's scary. I had a lot of fun talking to captains and really talking about that chess aspect mm. um, and the decision making and all the different aspects, you know, looking at satellite photos and and some of it. I mean, there's even one story in the book about a boat owner and a captain who decided to lay a day because his daughters had a theater performance for a summer camp. And he just felt in the moment that he needed to go to that and yeah. change his schedule. And it it let me just say that fortune smiled on their boat as a result of that decision. And it was a really neat story. Um, the other thing about the big rock that I, I believe is unique is they have this fabulous fisherman's prize, which is the level five. So it's the total entry fees for this tournament are about $30,000. If a boat enters all the divisions and the final one is fabulous fisherman's and that vision is where the first Marlin boated over 500 pounds wins a half a million dollars. Wow. So obviously, because it's the first, this year it's 555,000. Everything's a little higher because of the number of boats. Um, but because of that, like, you, I don't even know why anybody laid out yesterday. I'm sure it was a mechanical problem. I'm sure there were some reasons. But there were four fish brought to the docks and none of them were larger than 500. So that money is still on the table. The year that I focused on in my book, which was 2018, that money was on the table until Saturday. Wow. So a lot of boats were fished out because they kept fishing, even despite, you know, subpar conditions. They fished Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday because that money was still on the table and it didn't get claimed until the last day. So, oh, wow. yeah. Well, there's no guarantee it's, it's that it's going to get claimed, right? You have to catch a marlin no, over 500 pounds to, to get that. So. I wonder yeah. if, if, if that doesn't get claimed, wouldn't that be interesting if that rolled over to the next year? Um, well, now they, I think it was last year or two years ago, they introduced a rule that if it doesn't get claimed, that pot of money goes to the release points champion. Okay. So it increases the release, you know, the incentive for release do, points. Do the release points count for all, um, types of Marlin or just for the blue Marlin? They, so the point total is higher for blue, but yes, you, you get, you get release points for white and for the other billfish out there that, that do get caught from time to time, but the blue Marlin points are higher and the uh, evidence, the SD card, you know, standard of proof is higher for those as well. So that amount of money that they're giving away 3.5 million, is that what you said? 3.34 or something? 
Mm-hmm. Uh, so how do, how does that, how is that generated? Is that all from entry fees or how, how is that it generated? Is. It is. Yeah. It's generated from entry fees. So and 205 other, boats you know, times 30,000 is 3.34 million. Is that right? Something like somebody that. Somebody does that math and it's wrong. <laughs> and so we, as we used to say in journalism school, journalists doing math is danger. That's like, you got to watch right. out. But, well, but fishermen yeah, doing math is dangerous too. <laughs> yeah. My understanding of the math and, and there are sponsorships, but primarily the sponsorships pay for events during the week. And then the other thing about the big rock that should be mentioned, and I don't know if this is unique among these types of tournaments, but their charitable um, impact in that community is tremendous. So hmm. all the proceeds from the Big Rock store and the merchandise and Big Rock shirts, just the short sleeve t-shirts sell something like 30,000 a year. Wow! It's become like a, like a Southern season lifestyle brand, right. Southern tie, you know that. And so even people who don't go down there, that shirt is a status thing and they're, they, they sell it crazy. So a huge portion of their proceeds go to local charities and you can't drive a block in Moorhead city without seeing a, a hospice building or a, you know, cancer care center or salvation army building that was built largely with a leading gift from the big rock. So wow. that's a thing that is, so that would have that been, that would have been incredibly detrimental to the, to the, um, e- economy of the local, the local economy, if they had had to cancel this tournament this year. Yes, because they have a group of core charities that for whom they provide like operating expenses. Mm-hmm. And then during the year, one of their core charities might come to them, like a homeless shelter might say, we need new mattresses. And they'll purchase that in maybe, you know, January, because that's when they need it. So they, they're kind of always in touch and always helping out with these core local charities. It's really interesting. Yeah, that is interesting to see how it's been um, you know, such a community spirit. So how many years has that um tournament been going on this is the 62nd so what's the origin of the tournament so there was a little group of fishermen down there in moorhead city called called the fabulous fisherman's club that's where that prize got its name and and really it was it was it came down to kind of rumors that marlin had been spotted off that coast Mm -hmm. and so back you know when the tournament was was first getting started um they there there was speculation. And when the first Marlin was caught, um, from that point on, then that group got together and said, let's do a tournament. You know, the the catch of the first Marlin precipitated the tournament, but in the early days they gave points for every type of species. I mean, I have some sheets that I found that list all the different types of fish. It was a lot more complicated. The money and the boats of course, weren't anything like they are now. And one of the things that's so interesting is just the way the tournaments change as boats have become faster and the equipment's become more sophisticated, right. you know, in every, in every way. And so they run further east than they used to. So that boundary, the, the Big Rock has a hundred mile north-south fishing boundary, but no east-west. And so the boats keep going, they kind of keep pushing the envelope and mm-hmm. finding new fishing grounds out there because they can, because the boats are so much faster. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of technology that's changed in boats in 62 years. Ooh. And uh, a yeah. lot of the hulls have remained close to the same, but the engine technology and the fuel efficiency and the size of the fuel tanks and on and on and on the electronics and, and being able to kind of have a really good idea of what you're going to see once you get out there with sea surface temperatures and everything else that these guys are using, uh, really incentivizes them to take that chance and move, move further and further and further out. But that's just the nature of a fishing tournament. I mean, like in the redfish tournaments, what we would do is, um, you know, 
or in the kingfish tournaments are very much very similar like if you fish in this one little area if there's a if you put in at a certain city or whatever if you fish within 30 miles of that you know everybody's going to catch kind of the same fish so if you run 100 miles you're going to get into a completely different fishery and maybe they are um smaller or maybe they're bigger hopefully they're bigger um but you're going to come in with something different than what other people are catching so if you get way way out there you know like they are i mean they're hoping for they're swinging for the fence they are yeah and yet, you know, then there are other old school, you know, there've been, there are quite a few crews and captains who've been fishing this thing for decades, literally since the seventies. And, and they'll, you know, they, they swear by some of the old spots. I mean, there is a, a big formation out there called the big rock, which is what the tournament's named after. And, and, you know, it, it's reliable. Mm. I mean, they, they're always great catches around the big rock. And so, and then there are others that like to run up near the outer banks. And, and actually in this tournament, a boat can run out of Cape Hatteras or Moorhead city, so the boats that dock and run out of Hatteras have a much shorter ride and some like that, but they stay away from all the hoopla and excitement in Moorhead City. Is there a um, a boat that has more wins than anyone else? Or is there someone that there, has dominated in this in this tournament? It's funny. I was on a Raleigh, um, North Carolina sports radio show yesterday, not a fishing show. <laughs> and he was asking me, who are the favorites and who are the underdogs? And I was like, eh, not really a thing, but there are three, two, three, two time winners in the history of the, um, one of those was way back, um, in the very early, you know, first decade of the tournament and the other two are still competing. So, um, it, you know, that, that's something that happens, but rarely it's typically a different winner every year and it's a mix and you get local boats and people who know the waters really well. And then you get some that come in from last year, the record breaking Marlin 914 pounds was caught by a Maryland boat. And there've been quite a few South Carolina and Virginia. So it it mixes up quite a bit. I know Florida people Um, come up there too. Uh, Yeah. I interviewed a a Florida captain from my book named Glenn Cameron, the Floridian, and they fought a fish for like three or four hours that year and lost it. So I mm. wanted that story. So the, the year, why, why did you choose to, to, um, well, I don't, I haven't read your book, uh, but I hope to, um, uh, but, but what I read, um, about your book was that you, you chose one year to, mm-hmm. to basically write about, and I'm assuming that there's probably some history of the tournament and everything else in, in your book, but oh, yeah. why is it that you picked that one year? Primarily because that was the year that I had access and I decided to do it. So, I I mean, from my experience of watching the Big Rock for quite a while, there's always drama. There always are storylines like we talked about. It may be Monday's a big day and, and, and the winning fish is caught Monday or Tuesday and it's the golfer in the clubhouse waiting the week out. Or it may be that there's slow days and then Saturday peaks. And, and I knew that no matter what, there'd be good stories. I, I want as a storyteller, I wanted to zero in and do a zoom lens on one year because I felt like otherwise it would just be too hard to tell. Well, um, I didn't want a book that just said, you know, 1959, 1960, like that. And so what we did is I used the 2018 tournament. And then would dive down, you know, there's a story of a, an mm. angler who was killed in the Big Rock in 1997 and really? a boat that was disqualified in 2010 because of an invalid fishing license. Well, These are stories around here. That, I've heard that story. That's amazing. Mm. Um, it was amazing. So, so I make sure that it told, but well, I use that. Let's go into that, that for a second, because <laughs> I mean, that that's 2010, right? 
It yes, seems to me like that was yesterday because I remember I remember hearing about this. But what what happened in that in that story? So the crew um, caught the winning marlin for that year, and it was on the final day of the tournament. I think it was in the eight hundred pound. It was a big fish, and there was a college kid on board. You know, on a crew member who was a college twenty two year old college kid who on the, as they ran back in with this big fish and initially celebrating because they knew what they had, they realized that he didn't have a valid North Carolina fishing license. So he tried to renew it from his phone on the way back in. And uh, they give a polygraph, which is that pretty common? The yes. polygraph? Yep. I thought it's so. Even, even so. in the, uh, I mean, if they're giving away any kind of money, we had to take polygraph tests in the redfish tournaments when you're going to win you know, even as little as $20,000 or something like that, they generally give you a polygraph. I would imagine maybe they're not doing that in the bass tournaments because you have, um, you have someone accompanying you throughout the whole tournament. So there's not a, not an opportunity to, to cheat, but yes, a polygraph is, is very common. Yeah. So they're, they give, they're given the polygraph and, and, you know, the truth came out about what had happened and they had hoped that his last ditch effort to renew the license the $30 fishing license was enough at the end of the day, you know, they, they sued the team sued the big rock and there were countersuits and there was eventually a settlement three or four years later. And, um, they did, the boat did get some of the money back. So, you know, the big rock poor kid, um, I mean, you know, first of all, you shouldn't be out there without a fishing license, I guess, but man, I mean, you're a 22 year old kid and you got millions of dollars. If, if you're a captain, you've got to ask to see every one of them. That's it's incumbent on you to do that. And they have a captain's meeting where they obviously review all the rules at the beginning of the week. What I found interesting is in 2018, I went out twice with one um, on one boat, and I was supposed to go with a second boat, but that communicate I miss I missed them. They left early, all that. But the the point of the story is both of those captains reminded me, and I wasn't going to touch a fishing ride. I was just mm-hmm. out there to experience it. And they reminded me I better have my North Carolina fishing license. So whether or not they would have been that you know vigilant before 2010, certainly they are now. Yeah, that's the way rules pop up and the way people pay attention to them. What it's other what other stories did you come up with in the 62 year history of this tournament? Oh goodness, there's quite a few, you know. And just like I mentioned, 1997, there was an angler who had um, was was pulling a marlin in and had the the gaff wire wrapped around his Mm -hmm. hands. And that was such a tragic story. He was 29 years old and pulled overboard by the fish and, you know, the people on board and his close friends that fished with him, you know, felt like he had done everything right. And it was Mm -hmm. just a really freak, like a Chinese fire, Chinese, not what, you know, I'm talking about Chinese yo-yos that wrap your hands and the finger trick. Thank you. And a a crew member dove in after him. And that was a terrible story and, and definitely something that still gets discussed, obviously. Mm -hmm. Um, and his wife and daughter that never met her dad and she was born later that year came down for a memorial for the big rock the following year. And, and, and so that was something that we obviously wanted to make sure we talked about and, and just stories of, you know, the one that got away and of stories of like, there was one guy I like named um, Steve Coulter. He's the captain of a book called sea creature. And they're one of the two time champions. Mm-hmm. And he didn't really even know much about the big rock. He got into the charter business off of Hatteras and he entered the, the tournament um, at the, the first time he won. He wasn't the boat owner. He was the captain of another guy's boat. 
And they had to wait and fish later in the week because his boss was a dentist and he had appointments and he couldn't go out. And, and then he said, no, look, we have to go this one day because the weather's going to get bad. So they fish one day. And then when the dentist was able to come down, the weather was terrible and the conditions were really dangerous. So they didn't even fish all four days, but they caught the one winning fish and won the tournament. And the captain had never even been into Moorhead City. He didn't know how to get to the way station. And so he had to get someone to direct him. And it was just fun to hear people's stories because it really is a hero's welcome where they come in and cars driving over the bridge will be honking their horns. And, you know, the recreational boats are just all over cheering as the boat comes in and and for you know for most captains and anglers it's the dream the dream is to get to back into that slip and to the cheering crowds unfortunately the first two weigh-ins yesterday didn't make minimum and i think that turns from a dream to a nightmare for a lot of the like the worst thing would be to boat a fish and bring it in and have it be under 400 pounds is there a penalty penalized and what's the penalty for that there is there's a there's 400 release points. So it wow. puts and what, you what, what's one, what's, so how are the, how is a release point? Um, like what is a, if you release one fish, what, how many is that? How many points? For a blue, it's 400. Okay. So that's like blue, losing a fish. And losing a fish. And for the others, it's one, I think it's 125. No, 150. I'm going to get in trouble. Um, but it's, it's quite a bit less for yeah. the other, the other bill. That's a good rule um, because it keeps people from, yeah. from inadvertently just bringing in whatever and hoping for the best. Yeah. We have a similar rule in the bonefish tournaments in the Florida Keys where there's a, there's a way fish. And, and for a long time, it was eight pounds. If you brought in a fish that was under eight pounds, you were penalized. Um, and, and there's, really those fish are being brought in alive. Um, right. Yeah. I would imagine that, that, that tournament, is there any, I mean, like in the, in the, in the, um, day and age of catch and release and conservation, you still have a kill tournament like that. And where, what, what's the stand on that? Is there any talk about that in that particular tournament? There is. They get opposition. And I think in this age of social media, especially, you know, every year there are going to be people on the Big Rock website who are questioning whether they should kill fish at all. Um, and so they they do have that backlash. You know, plenty of the Big Rock veterans and board members are going to say, you know, way more marlin are killed every year by long lines, incidental mm-hmm. long lines, um, commercial fishermen. And so they try to explain that situation. The other thing that they'll counter with, which I think is valid, is this tournament has a great research offshoot. So North Carolina State Marine Fisheries Department or Marine Science Department comes in and they take all the marlin, take samples, and they just do all kinds of studies throughout the year with the fish that are brought in and and have done some significant work um, with the fish. So obviously you don't eat the marlin, um, but you do do study it. and, And the other thing about it is they've been able to promote conservation with the release it didn't used to be any release mm-hmm. in the Big Rock. Right. Probably was common. A lot of tournaments have switched. And there are some Governor's Cup tournaments that are release only. Hmm. But it wouldn't be the Big Rock without that element. So, yeah, yeah you have to follow that. But they yeah. try to... One of the Waymasters works for the um, Department of Marine Fisheries, and he is a conservationist, and he tries to educate and tries to really <clears throat> bring forward the good that they're able to do with the fish that they bring in. Yeah. And so nobody's eating them? So no, nobody's eating marlin. Do you eat marlin? Well, I know that people, I know that marlin is, is something that you can see on a menu places and people do eat them. Um, 
there's plenty of meat available. I know I mean, it's 900 pounds of, of, of yeah. Marlin. I can imagine. I, I bet people eat them. Yeah. They don't think that they, they don't eat them. Yeah. I have been told that, that that's not really done, but I, uh, now I'm going to have to look into it. Well, I and wonder, I, I don't know. I've never eaten a Marlin. Um, but yeah, I've also needs to let us know if it tastes good. Yeah. Good I mean, one time I went to a restaurant, um, and they had Marlin on the menu and one of the people that I was eating dinner with questioned the waiter and he was like, Marlin, you have Marlin on mm-hmm. the menu. Like that's, that's not really that cool. And the waiter said, Oh, Oh, I know what you're saying. It's farm raised. And we thought, damn, that's gotta be a hell of a farm to be raising, <laughs> raising some Marlin. <laughs> I don't, I don't know. That's I'm still like one of our that. favorite inside jokes is that, uh, it's farm raised, I know what they're thinking. um, right. yeah. but it yes. could be, you know, they do some incredible things with, um, with tuna, uh, where they, and I'm not even sure where this is done, but they, they have these nets and they're, they're offshore and they they bring them into these kind of like a fjord area and then they net off this giant area that it it kind of drops off of these mountains and it gets very deep really close to the shore and then they they have a big net that goes across there and they just raise these tuna and um i don't know if it's if it's like commercially viable for sushi restaurants or if they're raising enough for that but there are people that have figured out how to do it you know, to, to some extent in the ocean with a, with a giant net in an area that is perfect for it. You know, um, is that a farm? Does that count as a farm? Well, it's kind of a farm. I mean, you know, they, they, they grow them. I'm going to get spicy tuna rolls for lunch. (laughs) That sounds good. Um, um, the, uh, so this tournament, um, are are there, is, is there like a, like a ring of tournaments. I know the white Marlin open would be another one that would be in this category. Is there, is there like a circuit that, that some of these boats are fishing and that includes several of these tournaments together? I think it depends. A lot of the North Carolina based boats and even some other you know nearby coastal States have do enter the governor's cup. So, you know, that's an aggregation of points um, for the, I believe it's six um, governor's cup tournaments that are, you know, a season, they comprise a season. So they're all, you know, there's a one at Hatteras, one in Swansboro, all these North Carolina. I'd say the Big Rock is the crown jewel of the North Carolina Governor's Cup and South Carolina has a Governor's Cup series as well. And then you've got the people that, I mean, there's a, a legendary Marlin fisherman I met last year or two years ago named Charles Perry, who was fishing on Terry Labonte's boat called Shifting Gears. And Labonte's boat did very well the year I covered. So that ended up working out really well for me since he's well-known with NASCAR. Um, And so Steve Perry is the kind of guy, you know, he's hitting the hot spots, but they're not just on the East Coast. It's, you know, Costa Rica, Australia. He's done the Black Marlin. Mm -hmm. Um, And so you get the kind of big names here and there who get brought in, especially someone like Terry Labonte. Um, Are you aware of the most famous boat that's part of the Big Rock this year i, I don't mean, know tell me who it is i'm gonna give you a hint because i like the drama um his boat is called catch 23 he's a north okay. carolina native i would imagine that that um, might be no, michael jordan for, michael jordan is, has so. been showing a lot of interest in the sailfish tournaments in the florida keys and he's uh he's yes. been uh he's been doing a lot of that um so yeah and that's his boat catch 23 huh that's a cool he's name. out there he, yeah. He's officially out there. Um, he did enter the White Marlin Open last year, 
in August. And so didn't catch anything. Um, the thing I don't know, well, there's a lot I don't know. I know he's out there. I know the boat is an 80 foot monster and it's beautiful. Um, but I don't know who he has with him. So I thought about that because of Terry Labani, somehow he got some of the very best to fish with him that year and it paid off. And mm -hmm. I, I don't know who MJ has. I hope he's hired some people who really know the waters. I guess we're going to find I'm out. I'm sure that he has. I mean, you know, yeah, you've got to. Well, and that's what my son said. Oh, he doesn't care about winning. He, I said, have you watched The Last Dance? <laughs> really? No kidding. He's the most competitive person I think I've ever seen portrayed anywhere. Um, but, you know, social distancing out the window if he pulls into that landing. I just right. cannot imagine what it's yeah. So if it happens, I've, I've, uh, one of my friends was at one of the sailfish tournaments and he was there and, uh, he kind of came out on the back of the boat and, uh, everybody went nuts and he just kind of waved and went back in. Um, which I can imagine, you know, like he, that's probably not what he's looking for. He's kind of, he likes the, he likes the hunt. He likes the excitement of the fishing and he probably has had enough of the spotlight. You know, I'm sure he has. And at least, you know, that type of sport fishing, you can be away there. I mean, there's no way people are going to be able to flock to you while you're doing the thing. Right. <laughs> That's, that has an advantage. And, you know, if they do catch something big, I guess they're going to figure out how to handle that. But it hasn't happened so far. And even Moorhead City is so small. There are only a few places where most of the boats are docked. Like I said, he could be up at Hatteras. But there are very few private homes with the type of situation where a boat that large, mm -hmm. you know, could dock there. But I would imagine they tried to find one if possible, because there are only a few marinas where most of the boats are. And I think people were probably going to hang out and see if they find him. Yeah. Well, I know he's coming down to Florida in that same boat. And uh, I just saw not too long ago, I think it was in the Jupiter Inlet. Um, they saw his boat going by and had a little video of it. Um, but it's yeah. an interesting yeah. kind of thing. Like in the red bone tournaments, we have this, we had this, uh, little, um, well, it was like the biggest tournaments in the Florida Keys for a while. And it was a celebrity charity tournament and there wasn't money involved, but there was more than that. There was ego involved and men will do great things, uh, to win a really kind of crappy piece of art for their house um when <laughs> when it shows that they did better than other people but there would be there would be all these celebrities that would come into that tournament and they were you know like people that I knew and heard of or they would be just kind of uh old retired sports stars or mm -hmm. somebody like Clarence Clemens that was the uh was in oh. in Bruce Springsteen's band he fished in that tournament right. all the to time say his name yeah. uh, he's he's <laughs> he's no longer with us anymore but Clarence Clemens loved to fish in those tournaments mm -hmm. and um so would like some you know fishing stars and people like that and it was always kind of interesting because you're you're around like a celebrity or whatever but when you're competing in this tournament like they're kind of on your territory now and they're not like anything special it's like okay well there's so-and-so over there that's that's great and i'm sure that that's how it is with you know these guys are fishing next to michael jordan and like they're like okay well like he's the new guy like uh, this is I agree. we're doing yeah. just we're gonna do just fine here this is you know, it's yeah. like, it's a great equalizer in that way. Like, yeah. of course, that's absolutely he's true. an incredible athlete and a very competitive person. And I'm sure he's put together the best crew he can and the best boat that money can buy, but that still doesn't win. 
that doesn't that won't win it at, no. at all. No. And um, it's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, you can't I, I buy it. Mm-hmm. I told somebody yesterday that he's an underdog. It was the same. Of course. Name favorites and underdogs. I was like, I mean, we don't say this very often, but we're not, ex- you know, you just, it'd be a surprise, I think. Yeah. Yeah. But there's a lot of different things about a tournament like this. I think, um, you know, there's, there's various degrees of winning. Like, can you catch the, the first one over 500 pounds? Well, that's a pretty good win. You're going to win 500, 500 grand. Um, yeah. And then there's probably all kinds of high point uh, daily, uh, you know, you yeah. win dailies, yeah. I'm sure. First um, release, daily prize, even the game fish. I mean, the biggest tuna is a big prize. Yeah. It's, it's a lot of money. So that, you know, you're, you're obviously looking to um, cover your costs, uh, but of getting there, but those costs are far more than your entry fee of $30,000. I mean, a boat like that probably has, I don't know, could they spend a million dollars a year on that boat with crew and maintenance and dockage and, and, and fuel and insurance and everything else? I mean, this is, this is operating at a really, really high level. And then when you're talking about, you know, um, some of the people that are traveling all around the world and maybe even have, um, identical setups or different setups in Australia or other places where they're not moving this boat there. They just go to their other boat and their other crew that's in these other areas. And there are people out there that play at that level. And it's really amazing to see. Um, and, and it's like the, it's like the, I mean, it is, it's the ultimate, you know, there, if the weather's not good here or the fishing's not good here, they, they don't think about like, like, let's go, you know, tomorrow they're like, could we go to Australia? Is it happening there now? And call their captain there and get on a plane and go. I mean, it's, it's high level, high level stuff. It is. I'm fascinated by those situations and by those boats. I also have been over here in Eastern North Carolina long enough to love more than anything. When one of our local boats who runs charters just to pay their bills all year and they get out there and win it, you know, they've been, it for 30 years and you get that more often than you think um you know they know the waters and and it's just a beautiful thing or sometimes you get a boat where lots of people put in a share just to you know pay the bills and and then they win the big one that was true last year with that 914 pounder so what's the story about the 914 pounder that was a local boat no that was a maryland boat but they um their investors put in shares in order to fish. Okay. And so that I forgot how many, 10 or 15, um, who had put in shares. And so just, you know, the structure, the way people are able to pay for it and then divide up the winnings varies from boat to boat. The thing I love about that story is they weren't able to get that fish all the way through the door. Huh. Um, and part of it, the way the boat was, it wasn't as it was the size of the door, but also the angle. And there's a sharp edge on the lower part of the transom door. And, um, anyway, they had all kinds of other captains trying to give them advice and how to get the, the fish in the boat. I mean, they were just terrified that their catch was, they knew what they had, uh, that they, they had a, you know, first prize, first place winning fish, but they ended up having about a third of the fish out of the transom door and they had to tie the tail up in a way that it wouldn't be, you know, be beaten up by the surf on the way back in or eaten by sharks. Right. Because it can't be mutilated probably like, like the IGFA world record 
um, rules say that the fish can't be mutilated at all. So if it gets attacked by a shark or, or, or if it gets beat up in any way, shape or form that disqualifies the catch. So if you bring that fish in and the tail's been all beat up by, by the, yeah, the, Mm -hmm. the proper, just the prop wash, they'll discontinue the, they, that fish wouldn't be counted. Right. That's right. The fish did have an exhaust burn mm-hmm. from uh, kind of from the hot water. And so there were people, and this is common, I know, you know, who, who filed a, a complaint or just wanted to make sure that everything was on the up and up and, and the board did review everything thoroughly and gave them the win. But it's a great story because they had people sending them all these kind of harebrained ideas of ways to get that fish all the way in, um, you know, so soapy. And there was something about tying a cable to the engine block. And uh, I don't even, you know, it was just crazy stuff and trying to to winch it in. And, and they had trying to flood it in. And um, at the end of the day, none of that worked, but they they still got their catch. So it was a long day. I think that way in, it was the last day of the tournament. They were having the awards banquet and people were watching weigh in from the banquet on closed circuit. And I believe it was like nine or nine 30. So in theory, like there was a winner's table at the awards banquet that was empty because everyone knew that this was probably the fish, but they hadn't got in yet. So it was, wow. So that that would disqualify a catch too. If you didn't make it into the weigh in on a certain, by a certain time. They don't, they just, the only rule is you have to, this has changed some over the years, but the only rule is you have to have, caught your fish before lines out. Oh, so on Saturday lines out, get in anytime you want, you can get in anytime you want. So, um, there are, that didn't always used to be the case. There are other years where it varied, but, um, they, you know, this was crazy because lines out was two o'clock that day. So when you think about how long it was, it was just a long day. Um, they had hooked the fish around lunchtime and got in there at nine, nine 30 or so for the weigh in. Wow. But, I mean, they probably had to go really slow because, I mean, the worst, you know, worse than worse than losing the fish would be for it to uh, to bounce out on the way in. Like if a 900 pound Marlin starts sinking, good luck. Like, I I think that's I think that's gone. I mean, I don't even know what you would do. That's that's a that's a good problem to have kind of that that you have a fish that's so big that you can't get it into the into the boat. And you're talking about probably an 80 foot boat or or I don't know what. Is there any Not size like limit that. on the boat that you can have there? Um, there are a lot of boats out here in the fifties. You know, it's, it, there are like Michael Jordan's is 80 and there's one 90 foot boat I hear this year, but that's more the exception. Mm-hmm. The norm is more in the 50 foot kind of range. Yeah. 50 to 60. Yeah. Just so, a standard North Carolina. Hall. The other thing about, yeah. The other thing about that top dog boat with the 914 was there were only four crew members which is the smallest crew I've ever heard of the big rock. Wow. And there were some different what's reasons. A, what's why. a typical crew size, six or eight? Six to eight. Yeah. I mean, you get boats that pull in with 10, 11 people in there, but I don't think they're all doing anything. Mm, yeah. And I can say that I was, <laughs> I was on one and I wasn't doing anything. I was just there to look around and see what it was like. Yeah. So one of the things that Marlin fishermen are known for in that particular tournament is known for is, is fishing in really terrible weather. Like it seems like a lot of fish, uh, Marlin included, but, but man, a lot of fish will bite best, you know, under pretty bad conditions. So is there ever a day during this tournament or during the history of this tournament where they've just said, no, nobody's going, or they just call it? 
You know, not that I know of. Um, I have not been told yeah. that that was. Ever I would think that done. that's. And again, that they leave it up to the. I mean, you're talking about people in fifty to eighty foot boats. So, and they're all professional crews and captains. They can make their own decision on what's safe and what's not. But man, I tell you, those guys. I mean, you see some videos of of marlin fishing off the North Carolina coast, and it is terrible. I mean, just huge waves wind is just cranking and those guys are out there fishing anyway i mean and and you're fishing for millions of dollars so uh, you know it tends to make you want to go a little further and go out there on the day and and really if 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 that day keeps a lot of people at the dock then that even improves your chances of of doing the best on that particular day if you're you know if only 50 boats go instead of 150 then you have a much better chance of winning a daily but I know those guys are not afraid to fish in the worst possible conditions. No, they're really not. I like the sunny days, calm. You know, yeah, but the fish don't always like those. The fish don't always like those. Yeah, I like the sunny, calm days too. But but sometimes it's I don't know. We used to say you know it's too nice. It's too nice. Even the fish think it's too nice, so they don't they don't right. go and and right. They're not going to. They don't bite something. as well. It's those nasty days, man. They, they that's when you catch the biggest ones. So. What's your, um, what's your journey towards, uh, writing? So do you mean, how do I, with a certain book? Well, no, I mean, like, how did you, how did you become a professional writer? Sure. Um, well, I was a journalism major in college at the university of North Carolina. So I'm one of those rare people that Chapel Hill. Uh huh. Okay. Speaking of MJ, um, I was there a little bit after him, but not too long after. And so I, um, have really worked in the, the thing that I thought I was going to do my whole career, 30 years or so. And, um, that's unusual. I know, but just through, um, I had through four children, you know, having four children now they're older and things have changed in terms of my bandwidth to really work. But I was a newspaper reporter, sports writer. I've written for magazines, a lot of, you know, internet website work along the way, but really always wanted to write books because I love to go deep into one thing. That's just been my passion, just that enterprise reporting and, and, and telling stories in a you know comprehensive way. So in 2010, I wrote my first book, which was the story of Keith LeClaire. He was a baseball coach here at East Carolina, which is the university in my backyard, who died of ALS in 2006 and was amazing in his success and in his ability to inspire this community. So um, I wrote that book. And since then, this is my 10th book. The Big Ten Rock books. book is my 10th book wow. in 10 years. And some of those have been ghostwritten. I've, I've ghostwritten for a couple of different people along the way. I've written some contract type books. Like An, an example of that is I wrote the history of Hardee's okay. because Hardee's was founded up the road in Rocky Mount, North Carolina. And they wanted the history written while their you know, founding fathers were still able to tell those stories. And so they they hired me to write their history. Not not that concerned about whether it sold a lot of copies. They just wanted it to exist. Mm-hmm. I wrote a book about the Super Bowl. I've done a couple of ACC basketball history type books because of where I live and that we're passionate about that. So this book is a departure in some ways, but it isn't a departure because I'm always just looking for great stories to tell. And because it is something um, I have geographic proximity to and I've been amazed at people's excitement in this community. Mm. Even people I, that I didn't know would be interested in the Big Rock, but they, like me, have you know been here a long time and have heard the story. So it's right. been fun to hear the response. 
Yeah. And so what kind of a process did you, did you undertake to, to, to determine that this was, this book would have enough meat for a, or this subject would have enough meat for a whole book and that, that you were really going to, you know, take this as your next project. I mean, is it, do you have partners in this or did you just decide that this is a subject that you felt was deserving of a book and you were going to do it? just decided a bit. There's a leap of faith involved. And I think because some of my previously most successful books have been um, sports books with a fan base Mm -hmm. where you're kind of bargaining on the fact that people who love this team are going to buy the book. Now it's my job to make sure it's also a good book, but there there's a loyalty factor involved where you've kind of got a built-in readership or a built-in buyership base. I knew the big rock had that. I've been down there enough. I've been around it enough to know, you know, one thing I can't quite speak to is, is it the same number as like an NC state basketball fan base, Mm -hmm. which I wrote a book for them. And I can't quite tell that, but I do. Well, I mean, I already mentioned 30,000 t-shirts a year. So when you, you have those kinds of numbers, you know, that people follow it, you know, the big rock TV, the audio and video broadcasts of the tournament, which are up to the minute, you know, the live streams, those draw, you know, I mean, I think one of the days we talked about was 17,000, um, people from 56 different countries tuning in. So there's really, um, a reach. So for me, it's a little bit of a, like, okay, I think this is worth it. I know it's a good story. I have a publisher out of Houston who's, this is the fourth book I've worked on with him. And, um, he didn't know anything about the big rock, but he does now he was listening yesterday, watching weigh-ins and, and, um, so the publishing situation is small, not a lot of, you know, marketing money there, but just something I trust and we can produce really good books together. So it's a little bit of a, gosh, I, I do trust. I have, I have some readers now. I have people who've read most of my books who trust me and who love this event. So um, and we've been down there, you know, I had a friend yesterday walking around the landing with my book in her hand who just said, I'm just going to tell everybody about this. So it's guerrilla marketing. It's yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, doing everything I mean, we can to get. Yeah. You so, have to, well, the, the landscape I, on publishing has changed so much. I mean, you have this relationship with a, with a publisher, um, which is probably, I mean, that's probably very advantageous for somebody that's written 10 books. Did, is there any, any consideration of like a, when, or when would you consider maybe self-publishing a book rather than going through a publisher? I've actually done self-publishing with a number of people. I have, so like the ghostwriting books Mm -hmm. that I've done, um, I guess four or so of the books I've done have been, well, the Hardy's book was self-published because there was no reason not to. They wanted the book to exist. Self-published books look really nice now. Like you can hold a self-published and a traditionally published book next, especially if you hire a good graphic designer, don't get me started. Some mm-hmm. people don't. And so sometimes you can tell, but you, if you do it right, you can't tell the difference in terms of the appearance. And for Hardy's, they weren't looking to sell. I mean, it was not about sales. They just wanted it. And so the turnaround's really quick. The number of copies, I mean, the, the amount that you're paying per copy for printing is actually rather low for a paperback. So people can get in and out of that with very little risk. You mm-hmm. don't have to get like 2000 books and put them in your basement and hope they'll sell. Um, you can go order a hundred and then if they sell order a hundred more and there's no, the price is the same. And that's okay. not the way traditional publishing works, nor the way anything used to work. So people like that aspect of it. So we've had great success. And I have a, actually a friend who's a graphic designer who lives in my neighborhood. So we have this great little setup where if somebody wants a book, I can write it for them or edit it for them. 
depending on the situation and she can design the interior and the cover and we send it off to self-publishing and it's done. You know, we, we, we've done that together several times. She's the art and she's also designs covers for Whitecaps Media, which is my publisher for this book. So she's done most of my covers and I love that. I'm not artistic. I need people (laughs) like that in my life. Well, yeah, to, to come up with something really good. uh, Oftentimes you need, need people of different skill sets, like a writer is not necessarily your creative but maybe not necessarily yeah. in the artistic, you know, purely artistic way. Um, you yeah. can, you know, I don't know. I always have all of those kind of people around me, like for the television show, it's like, I got an idea of what we want to do with the television show, but I need somebody that can actually do that. And then, you know, like photographers and, and, uh, and people that can actually, you know, they're way better than, than I would ever be, you know, yeah, so for sure. that, yeah. that helps yeah. greatly. So do you have any ideas on, on a next project? I don't, I I have a couple of people I'm I'm working on helping edit a book for a former college basketball coach, um, here that lives here in my town, have another uh, ACC basketball, former star who's interested in me helping him write a book. So it's that kind of thing where I'm always having conversations with people who want to write books and trying to figure out if I want to get involved, but I love this model for the big rock too, where it's my idea and I execute it the way I want to do it. And then I get to go out and sell it. And so I feel like I just need to get these few weeks of this book launch and the tournament itself behind me and then figure out what's next. Um, just looking for great stories to tell. And, and I like the older stories too, sometimes where, you know, there are people who can tell them, but maybe they're getting older and this is the time to jump on that and, and to hear those stories and to put them into a book form. So I do a lot of digging. Yeah. Into. So are you, are you kind of drawn to the sports world? Like naturally, my background is sports writing. So I have written a few non-sports books, like kind of corporate history type things, just more straight biography. But um, I camp out in sports, and that's where I'd like to stay if I could. Yeah, well, there's a lot of great stories there for sure. And and lately with with like the the Last Dance, that's such a great, incredible documentary. And it's like it's like a story that that so many people kind of knew, but then the way they tell it is. I don't know. And then they, then it's a, a timing kind of thing. Like it's a, it's kind of an interesting time to release that. And the, and the recent Lance Armstrong one is kind of a similar yeah, kind of deal where you're just, yeah. you're, you're hearing the story just slightly different than you've ever heard it before. And um, I don't know, it's really, it's really cool. And you can do that with documentaries or books or, or, yeah. or whatever, as long as it's kind of long, longer form where you have, have time to, to make that case or, or tell that story. That's pretty interesting. Um, well, the big rock is going to be over on what day? Friday or Saturday? Saturday. 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 Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah. So that's the big rock for this year. Is your book already published and out there for people yeah, to buy? So the book, yes. The book launched last week on the third and um, bigrockbook.com is probably the best place to go because that's an easy, quick place to order it online. It is on Amazon, but we're having some Amazon issues at the moment that we are having trouble getting them to solve. So <laughs> maybe by the time people watch this, it'll be fine. The The ebook is there, but the printed book, we're having some trouble. Um, so bigrockbook.com. There are a few re- retailers up here in North Carolina that carry it. We're trying to get some more, but it's easy. We have actually a free shipping on our website right now too. So it's sweet if you're selling it right down there at the dock. 
Like that's oh, we like, are actually. Oh, good. We're, yeah, there's there's a retailer down there with a tent, and they've got it at their tent. So, not to mention friends of mine, industrious marketing friends who, like I mentioned, walk around with books. I mean, yesterday my friend called me from a restaurant and said, "I have these women who want to buy books," and I met her halfway, and I sold these ladies four books, and she'd never met them before. She just started telling them about it. So there that's you go. Friend- yeah, so yeah. Everybody excited. needs friends I, like that. <laughs> no kidding. I have a couple of book signings down there. Um, at the end of the week at the two stores down on the North Carolina coast that have the book right now. And actually tonight um, they're having a dinner for the cruise, a barbecue dinner at one of the big marinas. And I'm going to get to go down and hopefully sell books to the crew members because, you know, the book events are happening during the day when they're out fishing. So I want to give an opportunity for them as well. So um, just a couple of last questions. When you, when you launch into a project like this, do you have kind of a timeline that you expect it's going to take to finish? It varies widely. You know, if I sit down with somebody who wants to ghostwrite, I tell them I can usually have a book in their hand in six months from the time we meet first. Hmm. It's a fast timetable, but it's very doable. Um, but then it depends. Like it took me about a year and a half to write and research the book I wrote about the Dixie Classic, which is an old college basketball tournament, um, because it was quite a high level of read. A lot of microfilm, a lot of interviews. And it was the first book I'd done kind of like that. This book, in some ways, was two years beginning to end. But for most of a year of that, I had two other books I was writing. And we were kind of courting some North, some New York publishers, some big publishing houses, hoping they would pick it up. So it wasn't work for all that time. Mm. So, you know, I'd say six months to a year and a half, which is pretty broad range. It, it, for a ghostwriting project, it's one person's story that I just have to retell. I'm not doing all the extra research. So that just, you know, compresses the timeline. So with that kind of deal, do you just sit down with that person for, for a lot of different conversations and, and ask questions, or do you have them tell you their story and then you start digging in in places that seem interesting? Yeah, pretty much. They tell the story and I type and record and, you know, kind of, like you said, ask a lot of questions and then start to write it. It's, it's really an as told to story. So it's their story. I have to try to capture their voice a bit. But it also should be told a little better than they would tell it. Or why are they hiring me? Right. You know? Well, it's kind of interesting <laughs> when you when you have someone who has written books and and sold them successfully versus somebody who has lived that life. And you're kind of like, there's got to be a point there to where this one person thinks that this part of their life is is definitely the most important and the most interesting. And then you key in on something else, and it's like, well, this this makes a book. Like, what is that? Like what, what are you looking for in, in, in that kind of deal where it, it's, that's what makes a book? Well, for me, you know, I think it's like good fiction. I mean, you do have uh, the drama mm-hmm. building, the denouement, and, you know, the, the point of, of conflict and denouement. I mean, all of that should be in nonfiction. I, you know, I, some of the, my favorite nonfiction authors like Eric Larson and Laura Hillenbrand, you know, they write fiction in a way that you, feel like a nonfiction in a way that you feel like you're reading fiction. Mm -hmm. So there should be an arc to a story. Um, It should be told in a way that makes you identify and care about characters, Mm -hmm. even though they're real people. And so a lot of nonfiction writers, the mistake they make is they try to do too much, honestly. And I'm sorry. And they try to um, make something that is, 
you know, no one knows really where to land. No one kind of has a point to connect because they're just trying to do everything. Like, this is my life story. I was born, you know, that's not the way to do it. I mean, you want to start with the most compelling part of the story and the conflict and then build from that. So, so, and I think, I mean, I think anybody's life could be an interesting book, but I don't want to write all of them. (laughs) Everybody thinks they want one, so. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. Um, okay. Well then the last question would be, how would you know when, when a book is, is finished? I'm pretty, I'm pretty regimented in the way I go about it. So I plot out the number of chapters and I know about how many words each chapter is going to include. And then I plot out my process, you know, what I have an outline and I have deadline calendars where you know, I'm writing a thousand words a day or 1500 words a day for a certain period of time. So, so I don't ever, I'm, I'm not a writer that has trouble wondering if I'm done. I hmm. feel like I know what I'm doing going in and then I'm finished and it, it doesn't change all that often yeah. along the, the long way. I mean, obviously like one example is 2018 was our focus for the big rot. And then my husband and I went down there on the last day last year and we saw the 914 pound Marlin get caught. So that became the epilogue. Mm. That's easy. You know, that was, I just got lucky really the way that happened. And so certainly there are things you're going to do to adapt along the way, but, but yeah, I don't have much trouble. I like, I like it to be a neat and clean process and to kind of know what I'm doing before I start. Yeah. It's gotta be a pretty good feeling when you get that, that book in the mail and there's your, there's your nice package with a bow around it. Like it's done and it's exactly the way that you had, you had hoped. Um, yeah, that's pretty it is cool. A great and this is a pretty book. You need to send me your address and I'll send you a copy. Okay. I want you I'll make sure I do that. Well, make sure that everybody, um, give them how they can find the book, how they can find you on social sure. media or how they can connect with you in some way. Um, yeah, that'd be great. Um, Twitter and Instagram, um, is Bethany Bradshaw, my, my name, which is, uh, there's no, I guess there's not another one. So I got like <laughs> Um, bigrockbook.com is a great place for all the information about the book. And there's an Instagram account with the same name, Big Rock Book. And we've been doing mostly my 23 year old daughter, who's more um, adept at social media than I am, has been doing a great job putting up a lot of events and a lot of Big Rock news and, and, and book news, book events that we have going on. So, so check all that out and, and get yourself a copy. If anyone you know reads it, reach out to me and let me know what you think. Great. And then um, the Big Rock Tournament, how does somebody follow that? Thebigrock.com. The Big Rock dot com. And they have they they really upped the ante in terms of video and well the audio coverage is about the same as it's always been. When you get to hear the voice of the big rock, Randy Ramsey, talking to the fleet all day. If you want to, you can listen to all of it. But they also are really have put together great video coverage of the weigh-ins. And one of the hosts down there at the landing is Curtis Strange, okay. um, you know, two-time U.S. Open champion, who's part of the board, and he wrote the foreword for my book. So that's kind of fun. He normally he's broadcasting the U.S. Open this week, but he's available, so they've nice. got him down there as well. Okay, mm-hmm. cool. All right. Well, good luck with the book, and I hope that it Thank it you. sells off the shelves. And I appreciate your time Thank today. You got some great stories, and I look forward to reading your book. Thank you so much. I enjoyed it. All right. And tight lines to everybody. Thank All right, you. Thank you. See ya. Bye-bye. That was Bethany Bradshaw. And um, I'm going to check out the book, The Big Rock. Man, if you don't know about that tournament, it is, uh, that's where the big boys play. Like real big boys. So uh, check that out. 
Anyway, thanks to Bethany for that. As always, this podcast was brought to you by Waypoint TV. You can go there and get all of your favorite fishing shows and hunting shows and how-to and all kinds of stuff there. There's a social media network. There's an outdoor collective of podcasts. There is just about anything you want at Waypoint. Go to waypointtv.com. You can figure out how to get all of that. Barracuda Tackle makes the best tackle, I mean, the best cast nets on the market. They also are selling uh, my favorite new item is the hook extractor. I like the 13 and a half inch one myself. Uh, you may like the eight and a half inch one if uh, if you're taller than me and you don't have to lean over a, a high gunnel. Um, but go to barracudatackle.com. You can get one of those. Father's Day is coming up. That would be a great gift for your father or for yourself on Father's Day. And you can also go to hookgear.com. Take advantage of a 30% site-wide discount by using the code SE30 and you can pick out a whole bunch of stuff that you want for Father's Day and email it to your family and tell them to use that code and they can get 30% off on that. All right, that's it for today. We'll see you next week. And uh, thanks again, Bethany. See you. Join Captain Justin Leake and Meredith McCord for the best fishing action along Panama City Beach. Tune in to Chasing the Sun every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. Whoa, oh, my God! <laughs> every once in a while, it's fun to go with, like, just full-blown redneck on these fish. This is like high-tech cane pole fishing right here. From the white sandy beaches to the crystal blue waters, enjoy the best fishing Panama City Beach has to offer during Chasing the Sun, Sundays at 9.30 a.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.